Welcome to Something Personal, the financial planning podcast that discusses death so much, you just might confuse us with a true crime podcast. Now, if you did, that's okay. Stick around because today we're talking about life insurance. So that might actually come in handy for understanding some of your true crime podcast once you get back to those. I'm Amy Liberta, the editorial manager at Palisades Hudson Financial Group. Joining me today, this time to discuss life insurance, is our executive vice president and chief operating officer, Shamari Hearn. Thanks for coming back, Shamari. Yeah, thanks for having me back. So you co-authored a chapter about life insurance in our firm's book, Looking Ahead. That particular book is really aimed at people who are approaching or in retirement. But people of all ages might be listening to this podcast. So let's back up a second. Can you talk a little bit about how someone's relationship to life insurance might change over the course of their lifetime? Sure. So I think for most people, um, I would say their need for life insurance typically begins when they have children or other family members that are dependent on their income. Uh, so they want to maintain or obtain life insurance in order to provide for the protection against potential loss of income. Should something happen to them, say they die prematurely, they want to know that their loved ones are still going to be taken care of. Um, and then as t time goes on, they'll maintain that life insurance you know, during their working years. Uh, and then once they reach retirement, they can decide at that point uh, whether or not to continue to maintain that life insurance. You know, maybe they get rid of it or they keep it. But but now it's more of uh, maintaining the policy for wealth transfer, right? Le making sure that they leave something behind for their loved ones. Makes sense. So in general, people who have dependents, are there other people who might want to think about life insurance? And are there other things they might want to, to use it for besides just income replacement and wealth transfer? Sure. So as I mentioned before, and, and you touched on, right, there's protection against loss of income at the personal level, but uh, also there can be uh, at, you know, when there's a business, right? So it's a little less common. Uh, but I would say if you own a business, uh, you may want to insure yourself or say a key employee who is responsible for uh, bringing in new business or, you know, generating a significant amount of business revenue, right? So uh, similarly, you want to protect uh, the business by insuring that person or you as an owner or any other owners that you have uh, that's uh, part of the business. Um, because again, it will protect the business, but also ensure that the business can continue to run after say you're gone or that key employee is gone. In addition to that, there are certain people who have may have a significant amount of their wealth tied up in illiquid assets, such as real estate, or a closely held business, uh, they'll want to obtain life insurance in order to cover the estate taxes that may be due. Um, because at the the last thing you want to do is have to sell uh, one of these, you know, your illiquid assets in order to raise money for to cover the estate taxes. Especially, it'll likely be at an inopportune time, which may result in you having to take, or the estate rather, having to take a uh, discount. Um, receive a discounted value for the assets that they um, need to sell in order to raise the cash. You may think, well, currently the federal exemption amount, lifetime exemption amount is roughly $13 million per person. So most people are like, well, I may have a liquid assets, but I don't have that much. Uh, but you also have to consider what state you live in. So even though the at the federal level, the exemption amount is very high, the state level 
certain states like New York, uh, Connecticut, Oregon, they also have estate taxes and they have exemption amounts that are lower than the federal exemption. So just have to be conscious of that. And that goes with part of uh, in conjunction with your estate planning. And then lastly, uh, there's just uh, using life insurance as an effective uh, means of uh, transferring wealth to your heirs and uh, your children, grandchildren, and so forth. Great. So lots of uses for life insurance. Anyone who's listening who's shopped for life insurance knows there are different types. Is that because you're meeting these different needs? Yes. So I think, you know, just depending on what uh, you need the life insurance for. So in the, in the situation where there's uh, you're just protecting against the potential loss of, of personal income, right? You may want a, a term policy or if uh, similarly with a business and you're protecting against uh, the loss of potential business income. Similarly, you know, a, a term policy would likely be the most effective route to go. A term policy, is, as its name implies, means that there's uh, the policy or life insurance coverage is in place for a specific period of time. Um, it's not expected to be there throughout your lifetime, but just for a specific set of time. Right. So going back to uh, when you're protecting against potential loss of income, that's typically during your working years. Right. You're protecting against if you die prematurely. Um, you know, your your salary and wages, all the compensation uh, that helps take care of your loved ones goes away. Similarly, with a business uh, also, you know, you may that business may go on for a certain amount of time or your involvement in that business may only be for a certain amount of time. Or similarly with that, uh, if it's a key employee that you're insuring, right, maybe they're already in their 40s. Uh, maybe they plan to work another 20 years or so. So maybe you just need that coverage for, say, 20 years. Uh, versus when you need uh, life insurance to cover things like potential estate tax liabilities or to transfer wealth, you want that those policies to be in place or your life insurance policy to be in place during, you know, for your entire lifetime, right? So that would imply a permanent life insurance or, and there's, there's different types of um, permanent life insurance, but you would want to have that type of insurance in place uh, to ensure that when you do pass away, that those death benefits are available to cover whatever either estate tax liabilities or wealth transfer that you have in your plans. So without getting too deep into the weeds, you mentioned there are different kinds of permanent insurance. What are some of the main types people might be looking at? Yeah, I would say there's, there's multiple variations, but the three main types are uh, traditional whole life. Uh, and they vary in terms of the amount of flexibility. But I would start off with traditional whole life, which has a um, it's basically a combination of a um, term policy and uh, also a savings or investment account. Uh, with a traditional whole life, it, you know these policies are much more expensive than, say, a term policy uh, because, again, you're insuring against um, something that is inevitable, right? So the the likelihood that it pays out is almost certain, assuming you maintain that policy. Therefore, it's gonna, going to be much more costly. Um, with a whole life policy, what happens is it's pretty, it's pretty restrictive in terms of the um, policy premiums that are paid annually are pretty much set. The death benefit is set, um, but it's the least amount of risk to the policyholder. Right. As long as you pay your premiums uh, for the most part and the um, financial strength 
um, claims paying ability of the insurance company that you're working with is is strong, then you know that the policy will be there, uh, you know, when you need it. Um, then there's, um, I would say, uh, universal life insurance. That one unbundles the insurance and the savings or investment component. Um, that gives a little more flexibility because then you can use some of uh, the investment earnings um, within the policy to pay for um, policy premiums, right? So it can allow you to be able to say not have to pay a set amount of premiums uh, each month or each year uh, to maintain that policy. Uh, and then the third um, component which or, or option um, would be a, a variable universal life insurance policy. Uh, that one is the most flexible. That one had also with regard to this, the investment component, the policyholder gets to select the types of investments that are held in the investment component. And they operate similar to mutual funds. They're more costly, uh, but they operate similar to mutual funds. And depending on if that, you know, those investments perform well, you, you might be as the policyholder may be able to, in some cases, reduce your policy premiums that you pay out of pocket because the investments are performing so well, or um, may even need be able to stop paying um, premiums at, at a certain point in time. So with permanent life insurance, it sounds like there's sort of a balance between security and flexibility in the choices that you're picking. Is that fair? That Yeah, that's definitely fair. And I think it's, it's important to just consider the risks that are involved when you're when you start looking at universal life or variable universal life um, versus uh, traditional whole life, just hopefully the the insured or policy owner just fully understands what type of policy they're getting. So you've sat down, you figured out what you need the insurance for. That's probably pointed you at least in the direction of one kind of policy or another, if not you know, also factoring in your own preferences and your bigger financial picture, all those things. So you sorted that out either on your own or with an advisor, maybe. Now you now you got to shop. <laughs> now you have to actually find a policy. So how would you advise someone to start going about actually picking a particular company and a particular policy? Uh, that's a great question. I think one is, especially when it comes to uh, permanent life insurance policies, I think it it definitely benefits you to work with a reputable insurance agent just because there's so many options. Um, you know, there's certain assumptions baked into different policies and so forth that you need to um, be working with someone who will be able to lay out all the different options to you, be able to explain them. Uh, and as a result of, of that, you may also even want to bring in a or work with a fee only financial advisor, right? Bringing in this third party can help assess whether or not the insurance agent is providing you with policy options that will address your needs and that they're uh, those policies that they're offering really take into account like uh, realistic assumptions, right? Because I, I guess one thing that I didn't talk about was the fact that with uh, permanent life insurance policies, what the insurance agent or the insurance company will provide are what they call policy illustrations. And those show how the policy is expected to perform throughout the existence, existence of the policy. But there's a, a, a ton of assumptions that can be built into these, these policy illustrations, you know, to make them look as favorable as 
as as possible. Right. So that that uh, financial advisor can come in and say to the insurance agent, well, I want you to run a policy illustrations, assuming, you know, these specific assumptions. Right. So that it's clear, you know, it's, it's easier to assess how this policy may perform in various um, economic situations. Right. So you have the fee only advisor who has no skin in the game financially as to what you pick um, to give you sort of that extra set of eyes, more more expertise there. That's right. So when you're working with them, um, if you're looking at particular companies, what sort of things are you going to look for with an insurer? Uh, certain things you want to look for. And this is what a financial advisor would would look at is um, assessing the financial strength of uh, the insurance company. Right. So they're going to look at uh, look at the rating agencies uh, like Moody's, Standard and Poor's, AM Best uh, and also Weiss. And, you know, they have different rating scales in terms of how they assess the financial strength of uh, insurance companies. So, for example, uh, with AM Best, you want to look for a A plus rating um, for Standard & Poor's and maybe double A minus. Uh, is a is a good rating or anything above that. Uh, similarly with Moody's, it's AA3. Um, anything at, at that level above that usually indicates that you know there is um, the insurer has a strong financial footing. Um, Weiss is a little different than those other three uh, because it's it solely operates based off of public uh, information. Meanwhile, the first three that I mentioned. They're actually paid by the insurance companies to issue these these ratings. So it's a bit of a conflict of interest. So you want to look at both types of um, ratings from from both the ones that are uh, that the insurer pays for versus Weiss, which is uh, based all solely based on public information. Uh, you also want to look at uh, what type of um, insurance company it is. So there's different types. There's um, the two main types, however, are mutual insurance companies and then stock insurance companies. So with a mutual insurance company, the policyholders are the ones who actually own uh, the company. So in terms of when, as the mutual uh, insurance company generates profits, it returns those profits to the policyholders in the form of dividends or reductions in premiums, which is 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 nice to have if you get that. Um, obviously, with with stock insurance companies, it's just like a you know a company is publicly traded. Uh, they their goal is to maximize profits uh, for the benefit of their shareholders, um, and not looking necessarily at you know focusing on providing the best return to the policyholders. Uh, however, that doesn't necessarily mean you don't want to go with a um, a stock based insurance company. Uh, just because, you know, at the end of the day, in order for them to continue to provide uh, good returns for their um, stockholders, they also have to provide um, a quality product to um, to customers as well. So it kind of goes hand in hand. Right. So in addition to the strength of the company overall and the type of company it is, since permanent life insurance policies have an investment component, I assume you're also going to want to look at the investment performance for these kind of policies and products, too. That's true. Um, and again, I think this is where financial advisor will come in handy uh, in, in, in this process is in terms of just evaluating the historical investment performance. 
uh, of these insurers. And in addition to that, that's only one factor. And of course, just like in uh, in a traditional investment realm, right, past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results, but it still can help to look at how this insurer has performed or that their investments have performed uh, historically. Uh, but there's, you know, there's other factors to consider as well uh, versus looking solely at investment performance. There's looking at the general ex- expenses uh, and commissions that are paid out. There's looking at three year lapse ratios, for example. Uh, you know, oftentimes you think with an insurance company ins- uh, insured or uh, policyholders let the policies lapse. Uh, that could be a good thing. Right. Because then the insurance company doesn't have to then pay out. Uh, insurance benefits. Uh, meanwhile, during the time that they maintain the policies, they got to collect um, premiums. Uh, but at the same time, there's, there's a couple of things that come into play there. One is, you know, if the uh, policyholders let the policy lap, would say within the first couple of years, there's a, a fair amount of money that uh, the insurance company has to lay out up front in uh, with any new policy, right? Paying out commissions and so forth. And if, you know, there's a lot of people that are canceling within the first couple of years, then that actually is a, a net loss to the insurance company. The other thing is, also looking at, well, if there's a high percentage of policy lapses, typically people who are healthy are the ones who allow their policy to lapse, which can then cause what's called adverse selection, which means that, you know, people who are unwell are not likely to uh, let their policy lapse because they, you know, expect that they're, um, they're going to need the coverage and it's probably going to pay out in the near term. So if the majority of the insurance company's policyholders or actually the insureds are unwell, um, then that can be very costly to the insurance company. They don't have enough healthy people to uh, essentially balance that out. So there's there's a few other factors that the uh, financial advisor would, would take a look at as well. Just look, uh, another example might be non-performing, looking at non-performing assets, right? So the insurance companies, because they know that they have to pay out death benefits on an annual basis, they're not being very aggressive in the types of investments that they hold, right? So they're primarily investing in bonds, uh, mortgage-backed securities, certain real estate, but you know they have to monitor how those investments are performing. And if they're not performing well, or there's a number, you know, a high percentage of them that are non-performing, uh, that can mean potential uh, financial risk to the insurer in terms of being able to, to make claims or pay out claims. So these are, you know, these are the various factors and, and um, other considerations that you want to look at when you're selecting the insurer. Um, one thing else uh, I'll mention as well is historically, the amount of life insurance companies who have essentially gone out of business um, or un- rather, I would say, been unable to pay life insurance claims has been very low. Uh, but it's not zero, right? So, and of course, within life insurance, the reason you're getting life insurance is you're trying to um, address a risk um, that that is an important one. And you don't really want to gamble with selecting, going with a particular insurance company based solely on price, right? Just because say that insurance premium is very low in comparison to the others, there may be a good reason for that. Uh, so again, that's an, yet another reason why Working with a fee-only advisor, is it will be helpful um, in assessing that. 
situation. Um, and then another thing that I'll mention too is when you're with term policies, it's a little more straightforward, right? There's no investment component. So there's, um, that can be a lot more straightforward. People may decide that they just want to go search online, depending on the amount of coverage that they need and so forth. They may just decide that, you know, it's easy enough. I don't necessarily have to go through an agent. I can, you know, um, do some research online and obtain a, a term policy. But I would say if if you're uh, considering needing um, permanent life insurance, that you definitely work with a, uh, an, an agent and an advisor. Okay. So you and potentially your advisor done all this research, look at lots of projections, done the whole whole song and dance. You've got your policy. You selected it. You signed on the dotted line. Say you even set up automatic payment for your premiums. You're you're golden. You set it and forget it. There's nothing else to do, right? (laughs) No, (laughs) sorry, (laughs) listeners. I did try, but uh, (laughs) I guess I guess it never really is. That's that's true. So, I mean, again, with term policy, again, straightforward. There's no investment component. So, I mean, theoretically, again, you still may you you still want to look at the insurance company every so often, every few years, just to make sure, okay, this insurance company is, you know, is still operating. They aren't having issues with paying out death benefit claims. Um, But other than that, there's not much uh, you necessarily need to do outside of that, other than maybe looking at, you know, do you know, reassessing personally whether or not you need more insurance and so forth. But when it comes to uh, permanent life insurance policies, you want to revisit those policies, um, not only looking at how the policy is performing, but also the, how the insurance company that issued the policy is performing as well. Um, but when it, when, especially when it, going back to the policy itself, like I mentioned earlier, there's a, a, a many assumptions that are built into those policy illustrations that are given to you when you first purchase the policy, right? So they assume like, okay, in five years, the cash value or the investment component of it should be at this level, um, you know, and then you know, with the expectation that okay, now. Um, and you're still paying your premiums like you're um, you were scheduled to. Uh, but then, you know, you want to look at, say, reassess in five years and say, OK, well, did it actually meet that that value that we were expecting in terms of cash value or investment savings value? And what you want to do is, again, request policy illustrations from the agent under similar assumptions that you assumed when you first purchased the policy. So even more of a need for working with an, a financial advisor to help you assess um, the performance. Because, you know, if things are not performing well, it, it, it can be a, a, a warning sign, right? So you don't want to, you don't want to wait until the last minute, well, where you're being notified, say 10 or 15 years out that, oh, the policy hasn't performed the way that you anticipated. So we're going to have to significantly increase your policy premiums Otherwise, the policy is going to lapse, right? You, you you definitely don't want to get caught flat-footed. So reassessing every few years, three to five years or so, uh, is is ideal. So say it's bad news and you're not happy with how your current policy is performing. What are you looking at then as next steps? There's a number of things that you should be considering, right? One is, well, when I f- first... Obtain this policy may have been 20, 15, 20 years ago. 
obviously I was much younger, probably in better health. So th the cost of me getting a, a policy to replace that older existing policy now is going to be more costly. And what that means, um, you know, financially for you, whether or not you're able to support a much higher premium payment. Uh, the other thing to consider is whether or not you're even still insurable, right? So again, because of age and health, uh, you know, you may be in a situation where you can't, um, you may not be able to to pass the um, the, the health um, assessment aspect of um, obtaining a new policy. Um, in that case, if you're not insurable, then you may wind up being in a situation where you need to either um, stick with the, the existing policy you have, or maybe consider reducing the amount of coverage if you want to go with a new insurer, um, if, you know, just because of your, your budget. Um, but at least some coverage is better than no coverage. So that's another thing to consider as well. Also, you want to consider too, the fact that there's a lot of upfront costs, right? With obtaining a policy, you know, you've already paid that when the initial policy, so um, you would have to do that all over again with the new one. So, you know, there's just a number of different factors. But again, I think and I and I, I keep repeating this um, sounds like it's a commercial, <laughs> but you definitely want to work with a financial advisor to help you assess that. You want to work with the agent, but also definitely with the um, with the financial advisor, because you need that third party that's independent doesn't have skin in the game that can really help you assess the situation because at the end of the day, the majority of insurance agents are paid on commission, right? So, you know, getting, you know, having you purchase a new policy generates a lot more commission for them, especially up front. Sure. Well, so this entire episode has been a little bit on the death side, but we can't avoid the taxes. Uh, if you're leaving an existing policy, are there tax implications of that choice? There can be. In a, in a situation, again, it's a permanent life insurance policy. You know that there's a cash value or an investment component. If the cash value or savings component of the, the policy is higher than the total premiums you've paid into the policy, then that difference is taxed as ordinary income if you surrender that policy. So there can be income tax implications. Um, there are certain workarounds with that. You could, for example, do um, what's called a, um, internal revenue code section 1035 exchange, where instead of taking, you know, just surrendering the policy and then taking whatever cash value is left. If you're going into or purchasing a new policy, you do this exchange where it goes directly into the new policy. You can avoid some, you know, that tax consequence. So if you're happy with your policy, or at least if you decide to keep it, when those benefits paid out, will the people, either your family or your business, if that's what you're doing, owe taxes on those benefits? Uh, typically, the answer to that is no, right? Uh, with life insurance, um, there isn't, you know, when the uh, beneficiaries receive the uh, death benefits, uh, there's no income tax consequence to that. Uh, but it can depend when it comes to estate taxes, whether or not there could be some estate tax exposure. And the reason is an insurance policy, if you, the insured, owns that policy, uh, directly, you know, in your own name, it's included as an asset as part of your total estate. So if you, your estate is, uh, 
mentioned earlier that the federal exemption amount was roughly 13 million. If your state for estate, for example, was say worth 12 million, but then you had a $5 million policy. Well, now you're over the exemption amount and now um, there's some estate tax exposure. Um, but there's also um, effective planning that you can do to avoid that. And by doing so, you would um, set up what's called an irrevocable life insurance trust. Um, ideally, you would set up the trust first and have the trust take out the insurance policy. In that case, the trust is both the owner um, of the policy and also the beneficiary or direct beneficiary of the policy. Alternatively, if you do have an existing life insurance policy, uh, you can still transfer ownership of that policy into the trust. The difference there is, though, you have to outlive that transfer by three years. If you don't, then a policy and it's, or its death benefit will be included in your estate as if you never made the transfer. So if you've put a policy in this trust, presumably you still have to pay the premiums or, or the trust does. And the trustee, I assume, will not want to just shell out and pay those for you. So how do you arrange that um, in such a way that has maximized your planning benefit? Yes, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah, the typically the trustee doesn't <laughs> want to be responsible for coming out of their own pocket to pay for the uh, the, the premium. So, uh, as part of that planning, if you're the person who uh, uh, or the insured or whoever is obtaining the, the insurance, uh, if they're setting up the trust and having the trust on the policy, they want to uh, fund the trust with. Uh, enough cash or you know assets to be able to pay for those policy premiums. Um, that can be done a number of ways. Maybe upfront, you can potentially make an additional sizable gift to the trust, or in most cases, people may just uh, make annual gifts to that irrevocable trust. Uh, and you and those gifts are used in the form of cash are used to then pay those premiums. But even there, you have to do some effective planning. You want to try to avoid making taxable gifts. So each taxpayer currently um, the annual what's called the federal annual exclusion amount is seventeen thousand dollars per person. You want to um you know, if you can, you want to stay below that amount in order, you know, when making gifts to avoid any gift tax implications. There can be some, again, effective planning, maybe working with a um, financial advisor to help you um, determine, because if you have a, a large policy, those premiums could be well in excess on an annual basis of 17000 But that's when potentially you're looking through to the beneficiaries of that trust. So say there's five you know, family members or, or, you know, beneficiaries of that trust that um, can apply to that 17,000 can apply to each of them. The thing with that, though, is when you make that annual gift to the trust, um, typically in order for it to qualify for that annual exclusion amount, it has to be uh, an immediate gift. And meaning that they, the beneficiary has potentially can use it immediately. Right. But typically, if it's going to pay for life insurance premiums, they may not get a, a benefit of, you know, those gifts to the trust until, you know, 30 plus years later or, or longer uh, when the insured person dies and, you know, they receive the trust, receive the death benefits. So what you have to do in that case is the when you make the gift, the gift has to be available immediately to those beneficiaries for, say, typically it's like 30 to 60 days. And the trustee needs to notify 
those beneficiaries of that trust to inform them that, yes, a gift has been made to the trust. You know, if please let me know if you want to receive a distribution for your share of of this gift. Um, of course, the trustee and the financial advisor will explain to the beneficiaries of the trust that it's not necessarily in their best interest to take that gift out during that window that they get they get each year um, because it's, uh, you know, because of the intended purpose of the life insurance. But um, but, yeah, you have to make that window um, of, you know, opportunity for them to withdraw uh, within, say, 30 to 60 days each year to in order to be able to take advantage of the um, annual exclusion amount. It's my every episode. I have to just emphasize that communication is always a key part of what we're doing because it feels like absolutely uh, this is certainly one where if they understand what the the gift is for, they can leave it alone. But they need to understand at the beginning. That's right. Some of our listeners may be beneficiaries of life insurance policies. How do you collect once the insured has died? If you're a direct beneficiary, uh, what will happen is you need to uh, obtain um, a copy of or certified copy of the, the death certificate of the insured uh, and reach out to the insurance company that issued the policy. As a beneficiary, they'll send the packet that you have to complete with certain information. You submit that along with that death certificate. And then usually, you know, the insurance company, once they process the claim, you know, will pay it out within uh, probably with a relatively short period of time. Is there anything different you need to do if you're the beneficiary of a trust or will the trustee generally take care of that part of it? Yes. The trustee in that case will will handle that process. The beneficiary of the trust basically doesn't really need to do anything at that point. It's more so the trustee's responsibility to reach out to the insurance company or insurance companies, inform them uh, that the insured has passed away, uh, request those uh, documents in order to uh, submit a claim. The trustee will obtain a certified copy of the death certificate and submit that information. Um, and then after that, it just really depends, you know, the the death benefit will be paid out to the trust. The trustee will have to, if it didn't already have a bank account or investment account set up for the trust, will need to establish that to, you know, that account to receive those death benefits. And then it just depends on the provisions in the trust document to to determine how the trustee will uh, manage or administer the trust thereafter, whether or not they'll make um, just essentially dissolve the trust and then distribute the assets out to the beneficiaries. Or in most cases, the trust can be beneficial to the creator in the sense of they'll be able to control those assets from the grave, right? Because when they set up that trust, they put in certain provisions um, in terms of explaining to who the trustee is, how they want those uh, those assets to be managed once the death benefit has been received. Um, and then, you know, on what terms will they distribute assets to the beneficiaries? Maybe they continue to keep it in trust long term um, and just uh, make maybe annual distributions to the beneficiaries or pay certain um, expenditures of the beneficiaries like housing or um, medical and health, um, other health expenses, education um, expenses and things like that. So we talked about earlier in our conversation involving a fee-only financial planner in your selection process. From the flip side, as a financial advisor yourself, 
when you talk to clients about life insurance, how do you sort of situate it in their big financial picture? How do you encourage them to think about their insurance choices? So I think, you know, when I'm working with a client and, you know, my my colleagues are working with clients, we're looking at their complete financial picture. Right. And it, you know, and just looking at Oftentimes it may be the, the client may not even realize that they have this exposure or they just hadn't been considering the need for life insurance because they're so focused on tax planning, whether it's income tax planning, estate planning and manage their investments because they want to be able to retire at a certain age and so forth. Um, so, you know, as part of my responsibility is pointing out to them that, OK, you also um, you have a number of dependents that uh that are relying on your income. Uh, you may have young children that you also will need to put through college and, and so forth. So you want to make sure that you have adequate life insurance. You know, it's it's one uh, you know one of a number of important tools when you're helping the client achieve their financial objectives. So, is there any other burning life insurance tips or or uh, things to consider that we didn't touch on today that you wanted to to talk about? Life insurance uh, is is certainly um, like like I mentioned before is an important tool. Uh, it's because you want to be able to provide for your family. Um, you know, if you were to die prematurely, um, I think you know, especially when you're younger, you really feel like you're invincible. Um, nothing will happen to you, but unfortunately, things do happen. So you want to you know make sure you have adequate insurance. Um, and then again, there's, you know, there's other, uh, reasons that you may need life insurance as well. Um, so, you know, just making sure that, uh, you know, you work with an advisor to help you figure out what your needs are. Um, the advisor will tell you if, you know, if you only need a certain amount of coverage or maybe you just don't need coverage yet. Right. But they'll be able to help you with that process. But, um, it's, it's also an, again, important tool as part of your, you know, helping you and your family achieve your overall financial objectives. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Shamari. It was great to talk to you again. Oh, thanks. It's always a pleasure. Something Personal is a production of Palisades Hudson Financial Group, a financial planning and investment firm headquartered in South Florida. Our other offices are in Atlanta, Austin, the Portland, Oregon metropolitan area, and the New York City metro area. Something Personal is hosted by me, Amy Liberta. Our producers are Ali Elkin and Joseph Rangeli. Joseph Rangeli is also our director, editor, and mixer. Our firm has written two books, Looking Ahead, Life, Family, Wealth, and Business After 55, and The High Achiever's Guide to Wealth, which offers advice for younger professionals, entrepreneurs, athletes, and performers. Both books are available on Amazon in paperback and as eBooks.